I have with me on the phone Professor John Young, who's a consultant geriatrician at Bradford Teaching Hospital in the UK. John's here to talk to us about subdural hematoma in the elderly and the fact that it is so easily missed. Now, as we know, a subdural hematoma is due to the tearing of veins between the cortex, the cerebral cortex, and the dural sinuses, which means that blood can easily accumulate between the dura mater and the arachnoid mater. And the elderly, particularly, are prone to subdural hematomas due to the fragility of their veins. Uh, John, can you tell us how common um, subdural hematoma is in the population? Yeah, there's been a, a several um, estimates of the incident rates reported in the literature, and I have to say they do vary quite a lot. Um, the estimates vary between 7 and 77 cases per 100,000 people per year uh, of people aged uh, over the age of 70. Uh, and I think part of that range that we see in the literature is due to the fact that we are using increasingly computerized CT scanning is much more routine. So we pick up more cases. So case ascertainment, I think, has been better in recent years. But also we're exhibiting far more use of anticoagulants in older people for prevention of stroke in relation to atrial fibrillation. So I think we are seeing more cases than we used to. Mm. And why is it that it's, it can be so easily missed? Uh, I think there are quite a few reasons for this, really. I, I think, um, firstly, I think people in their minds think about subdural hematomas in relation to falls and particularly in relation to falls and head injury. But it seems that only half the people that have a subdural hematoma actually can recollect a fall or indeed a head injury. So that particular red flag doesn't always apply very well. Uh, and there seems to be quite a long delay um, between if they do have a fall and the onset of symptoms. So the fall can be something that uh, just disappears into the background. The, in, in some reports, the, the mean um, uh, delay between the uh, fall episode and the diagnosis of the subdural hematoma, uh, the, the mean time was 49 days with a range, quite fantastic range of 15 days to 751 days. So quite a long period can elapse between the apparent trigger event and the actual diagnosis. Uh, I think another reason why it's quite easily missed is that it, it's a bit of a conundrum that the initial CT scan can actually be, be, can be reported as normal. Uh, I think very often when you go back to these CT scans, you can see really subtle indications of a, a, an early subdural uh, hematoma. But nonetheless, the, it, it's a bit of a clinical trap that the first CT uh, that you might think uh, would exclude the subdural actually can be normal. Uh, and then I think finally, there's a lot, a lot of the symptoms uh, quite easily misinterpreted and ascribed quite reasonably, I think, sometimes to, to alternative conditions. So, for example, the behavioural manifestations of a subdural uh, hematoma or the personality changes or the fact it causes confusion can throw up alternative diagnoses, particularly delirium in older people. Uh, mask it can masquerade as dementia, and indeed dementia is a risk factor for subdural hematoma, so those two are related. Uh, and then, of course, you can get transient focal neurological signs, and so people think, oh, it's a... Uh, a transient ischemic attack. So uh, I, I think um, it's not a it's not a straightforward diagnosis by any means, really. 
No, so there are lots of diagnostic pitfalls there. And of course, you make the point in your article that many patients with a confirmed subdural hematoma don't actually have a history of a fall or head injury. So the absence of such a history doesn't exclude the diagnosis. That's absolutely so, and that's been shown in, in several uh, series of subdural hematomas. Uh, about half the patients don't seem to give a history of a fall or uh, a related head injury. So it, that's a complexity for the, the bedside clinician. It's uh, one of the reasons why the diagnosis gets missed. Do we have any data on how often it is missed? Um, not that I'm aware of at all, um, in the sense that I think in the end it probably does get diagnosed, but the issue is this delay between uh, knowing when the uh, triggering event was and when the diagnosis actually occurred, you know, this long delay of nearly 50 days, uh, and that presumably impacts on the eventual outcomes because we know subdural hemorrhage, subdural hematoma is a serious condition um, associated with progressive neurology towards the end and coma and of course death. So it's a serious condition uh, and common sense suggests that the earlier that you can pick this up, the more likely you're going to get a better outcome. Yes, it's certainly a diagnosis that matters. Um, and the article that you wrote for the BMJ, uh, I think, does cite uh, some data which says that diagnosis wasn't considered before imaging in as many as 60 to 80% of cases. So that's that's a significant number who, who are missed to start off with. It, it is, it is. And I guess it's part of the way we practice contemporary medicine that's... Uh, uh, a lot of older people, for various reasons, quite I think good reasons, find their way into the head CT scanner, uh, and you get then get a phone call saying, "Did you know this patient had a subdural hematoma?" And and the honest answer is we hadn't considered it as a clinical diagnosis, but thank goodness the person found their way into the head CT scanner. Um, so uh, th there are some incidental diagnoses which are made, not 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 uh, inconsiderable, as you say, quite a number of patients. Hmm. And if we are to avoid the pitfall of delayed diagnosis, when should we suspect this uh, problem clinically? Yeah, I think um, firstly any older person. Well, that's quite a large group, of course. Uh, but I think an older person that's uh, had a sequence of falls uh, and I think the important thing is always to ask about whether they've, they've banged their head, whether there's been any bruising or whether they've had to attend uh, an, an, an urgent uh, clinic somewhere for some suturing. Um, so I think that's quite an important thing to ask about if, if somebody's uh, having some falls. But I, I think one of the big sort of syndromes, if you like, one of the things that, that just makes it click in your head is if an older person's had a fall and they've gone off in some sort of way, in some sort of non-specific way. Um, maybe it's a behavioral issue or maybe it's a cognitive issue. So they've gone off behaviorally, they seem a bit more sleepy than usual, or they're a bit more aware of their, what's going on around them than is normal. So they might overreact when there's a small noise around them. So those behavioral features can be a clue. Uh, but I think also if they've just become uh, uh, unusually confused, disorientated, um, and uh, just not themselves at all, uh, that, that would be 
some red flags, I think, to, to, to think that this isn't just a straightforward fall, but there's something else going on. Um, as well as that, there are some more direct features, which I think are, are, are much easier to pick up on because they're more the traditional sort of features that one would find in the textbooks. And that's if there was persistent or progressive neurological deficit, such as an evolving uh, hemiparesis, um, if there's new onset of a headache, um, or indeed if there's a new seizure. Now, now those three things, the, the neurology, the headache and the seizure, are all likely to trigger uh, cranial CT imaging in their own right. So those you probably wouldn't miss uh, a subdural hematoma in that context. So I think the key thing is this falls and going off and just having a, a high index of suspicion that this could be a subdural hematoma. Perhaps just finally, the other red flag to consider is any older person that's on an anticoagulant. Uh, if, they, if, they've, if they've had a fall and they've gone off and they're on an anticoagulant, I think that, that is a real rich clinical scenario that uh, one would really have to rule out a subdural uh, hematoma in that context. And as you say, we're seeing more and more people uh, who fall into that category too. Um, it, it also, uh, I, I guess, reinforces the importance of taking a history from people who know the patient well, um, because subtle behavioural cognitive change might not be evident to the clinician seeing somebody for the first time. Absolutely. So, so I think in this context, the, the, the primary care physician or primary care nurse is in a very strong position just to, to just attentively listen to what the, uh, uh, the, the, the care or family member uh, has got to say. Absolutely. So just to summarise those very important points you've made, uh, we need to suspect it in the older person, particularly if they've had more falls recently, um, and we need to ask about whether they've hit their heads or not, although that history, of course, may not always be, be uh, evident. Um, we need to look for behavioural changes, cognitive changes, neurological changes, uh, and of course, uh, a history of new headaches or seizures. Um, those are the sorts of things that, that uh, ought to make us suspect the diagnosis. Would that be a reasonable summary? I think that's an excellent summary, Mabel. Thank you very much, Yes. <laughs> Okay. And I mustn't forget, of course, the, um, the history of uh, oral anticoagulation. Is antiplatelet therapy a problem? No. Uh, the best evidence is that it doesn't seem to be a risk factor for subdural hematoma. Uh, it's been well examined in some systematic reviews, pooling together quite large numbers of uh, studies and patients. Uh, and although there's a trend to uh, an increased risk of subdural hematoma, it's not statistically significant. Uh, and I think given the power of these, the, uh, the, the, the systematic reviews in terms of the numbers of patients involved, if there is a risk, it's jolly small. So it's oral anticoagulants we really need to worry about. Oral anticoagulants, the, the sort of flag that if you see it, you think, um, you know, could this be a subdural? And I think particularly if somebody's on an oral anticoagulant and their anticoagulant control looks rather poor, uh, because we know there's a, a relationship between poorly controlled anticoagulants and the risk of subdural hematoma. Okay, so the the diligent reader who who's looked at your article and has in front of them a patient for whom all the red flags are waving, what do we do once we suspect the condition? Yeah, I think as soon as the possibility of a subdural hematoma enters into your consciousness, you've then really got to commit yourself to organising a, a cranial computerised uh, tomography. Um, 
uh, I mean, I think that's it's a simple test. Uh, I think uh, it's quite widely available now in both primary care and certainly in secondary care. Uh, I, I think it should be done in, in, in within 12 hours for most patients. Uh, I think you should commit yourself to getting that organised. So it's the sort of thing not to, to leave and wait over the weekend. You need to get it done uh, within that 12-hour window. Um, so I think that, that that's the diagnostic test, basically. And you need to have the scans reviewed by somebody who uh, is alerted to the fact that, that this could be uh, a subdural uh, hematoma. That, that, that needs to be very clearly stated when you request the, the scan because as I mentioned at the beginning that the changes on the CT can be quite subtle and as the, as the um, hematoma matures it goes through a, a critical phase where it actually changes from being hyperdense which is quite easy to see to hypodense but in between that there's a little phase where it's actually isodense it's the same density as the brain and that really does require quite a lot of uh, careful looking at the scans to make sure you're not overlooking one. Um, so you have to have, uh, well, I think ideally you should have a, a, um, a conversation with the radiologist to say, look, you know, we really think this could be a subdural hematoma. Can you look very hard for some subtle changes? And the subtle changes are things like the effacement of the cerebral gyri. Um, and also some slight distortion of the ventricular system. Uh, and, and once you've got your eye in and you know that's what you're looking for, it actually isn't too difficult to spot, even if the uh, hematoma is in the isodense phase. Mm, mm. Now, having made the diagnosis, what's the next step? Um, the main thing to consider, of course, is surgical removal of the hematoma. Uh, which sounds like a big procedure, but actually it's it's quite a minor procedure, in fact. It's done under local, uh, a borehole is drilled, and the hematoma is evacuated. Now, um, there are in certain situations, it's quite acceptable to uh, just observe and wait and see, uh, and that's the situation where a hematoma has been diagnosed, but it doesn't seem to be causing any uh, untoward effects or symptoms. Um, this is a situation where uh, we were talking about before where essentially you've diagnosed the hematoma in, incidentally because of other reasons. You've, you've done a CT scan for other reasons, in other words. So in these situations where there's no focal neurology and the patient as well, it is acceptable to wait, wait and watch and see and observe the clinical situation. Usually this will be done in consultation with uh, local uh, neurosurgical colleagues. They would certainly want to see the scan, possibly see the patient as well. Uh, depends on the geography and how far away and so on they are. But you, we would normally have a conversation with them to explain the clinical circumstances of the patient. So that would be one context, the wait and watch and see context. But having done all that, you'd obviously also be thinking about stopping anticoagulants where you'd reverse any anticoagulants you'd stop the any, any antiplatelet treatment and you certainly wouldn't be giving them any uh, subcutaneous heparin for DVT prophylaxis. So there's a few things there to attend to. Um, now, the other situation where you'd definitely go for surgery would be for somebody who had um, clear, clearly had symptoms. They were confused or they were behaviorally disturbed or they had progressive ne focal neurology. Uh, those are the ones that would need surgery and, and surgery very quickly. So it would be a same-day transfer to a neurosurgical centre 
for the uh, hematoma evacuation. And generally, um, these people do reasonably well. Um, they generally come back the following day from the neurosurgical centre and then obviously they require a period of monitoring and support. Um, but there's a small group of people that sadly do very badly and, and you can guess that group. They, they tend to be those that have got really massive hematomas. Um, quite often these patients are the patients that we were talking about before where the diagnosis has been very delayed and so essentially the hematoma has grown and grown um, over several weeks and uh, they present really quite late in the, on, in, the, uh, in, in the development of their hematoma. So they often present in a very pre-comatose or indeed comatose state with uh, a lot of neurology, and there's a lot of brain compression, basically. And even when the brain is released, when that pressure is released, these people do very badly because they get a lot of intracranial hemorrhage as the, as the brain pings back into shape. They just get a lot of internal bleeding. So sadly, these people do do quite badly. So that, that's the situation we want to try and avoid, of course. I guess even in people uh, for whom the decision is to treat conservatively because they're small, the diagnosis is worth making because of the propensity of some hematomas to um, develop acute on chronic bleeding. Um, so we do need to monitor patients even if they're asymptomatic and treated conservatively. Yes, absolutely. So, so uh, those patients that we decide uh, and, of course, discuss this with them, uh, that we're going to pursue watchful waiting approach, that they need very careful observation, um, sometimes in hospital, but uh, as an outpatient as well, because if they begin to deteriorate, they need very rapid repeat uh, head CT scan and referral to the neurosurgical unit. So it is important that you pick those patients up and can actively monitor them. And how long would one monitor such patients for? Um, I think uh, certainly up to three months and possibly even longer, up to six months. Um, just, just keeping a watch to make sure the hematoma is uh, getting smaller rather than bigger. Mm. And I, I guess it depends too on, on um, risk factors for getting a hemorrhage in the first place. If they, they have lots of falls or, they're on, um, or, or they have a bleeding tendency. Yes, yes. That, that would make good clinical sense, yes. Okay, well, thank you, John, for that really useful summary of, of when to think of a subdural hematoma and um, how to avoid missing it.